The headlines tonight. Argentina wins 2022 World Cup. Titanic sinks records, grosses 1.8 billion. And Henry VIII, from Playboy to Kingboy. Plus, coming up, the ghost of Princess Diana to judge bread-making competition. Those are the headlines. Sink me sideways. News Bang. Giving the uninitiated the gift of reality. 2022. Argentina has won the 2022 World Cup held in Qatar. The celebrations in Argentina have been wild, with fans taking to the streets to riot and loot shops. President Macri has declared a national holiday and ordered the army onto the streets to loot more shops. The tournament, which took place in Qatar, was mired in controversy from the start. The heat was so intense that several players spontaneously combusted on the pitch and many more were turned into human bounty bars. FIFA's decision to hold it there has been described as insani by Sepp Blatter, who should know having picketed himself. Argentina's victory means they now go through to face Germany in the final of the 2026 World Cup, which will be held on Pluto due to global warming having made Earth uninhabitable by then. Adieu. 1997. In the year of our Lord, 1997, a cinematic disaster of epic proportions was unleashed upon unsuspecting audiences. Titanic, a film so appalling it sank like its namesake, was helmed by James Cameron who had previously brought us The Abyss, another watery flop, starring Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio as star-crossed lovers from different sides of the class system, this three-hour marathon plunges us into the icy depths of boredom. The plot centres on the doomed RMS Titanic, which sank in 1912 after colliding with an iceberg or a bad script, historians are still arguing. The film's standout performance comes from an iceberg who refused to be named but said, even I couldn't sink this turkey. Despite its record-breaking box office takings of $1.8 billion worldwide, Titanic has been panned by critics as a bloated mess and the cinematic equivalent of being trapped in a lifeboat with Celine Dion. One survivor said, I wish I'd gone down with the ship. 1154. In a ceremony that will go down in history, Henry VIII was crowned King of England today at Westminster Abbey. The portly monarch, who ruled over England, Wales, Ireland, France, Scotland and the Duchy of Brittany, swore to serve and protect his subjects from the comfort of a gold-plated throne. The Abbey has been the site of coronations since 10,666 when William the Conqueror first said, I'll have this one after seeing it on right move. The service was attended by dignitaries from far and wide, including Sir Percival de Wifraffle, who said, it was a right old doozy. I've never seen so much bling in me life. The Archbishop of Canterbury placed St. Edward's crown on Henry's head before he mumbled something about God and anointed him with holy oil. The new king then swore fealty to the Pope before realising he was in the wrong country and quickly backtracked. Afterwards, guests enjoyed a sumptuous banquet of peacocks stuffed with swans, stuffed with geese, stuffed with smaller geese. News bang, driving the bland into the vacuum of ignorance. And now, for the weather with Shakanaka Giles. And now, for the weather. 
It's a rather delightful day today, a bit like opening a fresh box of crayons. Expect clear skies and sunshine, a perfect backdrop for the festive cheer. However, the mercury is expected to dip a bit as the day progresses, so don't forget to wrap up warm like a gift waiting to be unwrapped. And that's all the weather, so bundle up, enjoy the day and spread the joy. Merry Christmas! Nineteen sixty four. In nineteen sixty four, South Vietnam's ruling faction, led by Nguyen Khan, dissolved the High National Council, an advisory body. This left the United States grappling with their inability to influence the situation, despite supporting the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. The country existed between nineteen fifty five and nineteen seventy five and was recognized by numerous nations worldwide. Nguyen Khan assumed a significant role during this time as he served as both head of state and prime minister. Although America disapproved of this move, they were limited in their response due to their primary focus on supporting the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. Brian Bastable has more. The ghosts of war come out to haunt us still. As the battle for South Vietnam rages on, we find ourselves caught up in a vortex of destruction, despair and death. The air is thick with the stench of cordite, and the sound of artillery pummels the very air we breathe. This, my friends, is the very heart of the inferno. The very fabric of society has been shredded, leaving us a people adrift in a sea of chaos. As the conflict escalates, we find ourselves drawn deeper into the maelstrom. Our fates entwined with the bitter winds of war. This morning I awoke to the sound of gunfire, as if a thousand drums had come alive within the bowels of the earth. With my heart in my throat and my gut twisted into a knot, I climbed out of the bunker casting about for a way to make sense of the madness. The enemy is all around us, their fangs bared and their eyes ablaze with the fire of fanaticism. But even as they seek to consume us, we stand tall and proud, our resolve unshaken and our spirits unbroken. This is what war is all about, folks. This is what it means to be alive. In this crucible of chaos, we are both victims and perpetrators, caught up in a dance of death that knows no bounds. These men, these brave fighting men, have risked everything for freedom, for democracy, for the very notion that we can one day live in a world at peace. And as we stand here in the very heart of the storm, we know that we are blessed to witness their sacrifice, their unwavering courage, their unbending determination to prevail against all odds. For in the final analysis, what matters most is not the outcome of this war, but the very essence of the human spirit, that indomitable flame that burns within us all. And as we stand here, we know that we are blessed to be alive, to bear witness to a struggle that will live on in the annals of history, a testament to the strength of the human will. And so, my friends, we watch, we wait, we pray, for this the longest day of our lives. In South Vietnam, Brian Bastable, Newsbang. 2016. In the year 2016, a year filled with numerous events and changes, Russia's ambassador to Turkey, 
Andrei Karlov was tragically assassinated in Ankara during an art gallery visit. The motive seemed to be related to ongoing unrest over Russian involvement in the Syrian civil war, which had led to protests throughout the region. The assassination captured global attention as tensions between Turkey and Russia were further exacerbated. Ken Shit provides updates on the story from Ankara. Good evening, degenerates. Let's take a trip back to the good old days of 2016, a time when men were men, women were women, and ambassadors got shot in the back by crazed cops. We're talking about Andrei Karlov, Russia's top diplomat in Turkey. He was hosting an art exhibition in Ankara, the capital city of Turkey, and a place where you can find more bazaars than you can shake a stick at. But things took a turn for the worse when a Turkish police officer decided to pull a fast one on Ol Andrei. The assassin, who we'll call Trigger Happy, stormed into the gallery and started firing wildly at Karloff. The poor guy didn't stand a chance. He fell to the ground like a sack of potatoes, his life ebbing away as Trigger Happy continued his rampage. The reason behind this senseless act of violence? Well, it seems that Turkey and Russia were having a bit of a tiff over Syria. You see, Russia was backing Assad like he was their long-lost brother, while Turkey was all up in arms about it. It's like two kids fighting over a toy they both want but can't have. So, there you have it, folks. Another day in paradise. Ambassadors getting shot, countries going to war. It's enough to make you want to pack your bags and move to Mars. But until then, we'll just have to keep our eyes peeled and our fingers crossed that sanity will prevail. This is Ken Shit signing off from Newsbang. 1984. We travel to the past in 1984 when the world saw a significant shift in global affairs. The Sino-British Joint Declaration was signed, indicating a change of sovereignty over Hong Kong from the UK to China. Come July 1, 1997, Hong Kong transitioned into a special administrative region, and this upcoming year marked the start of Beijing's increasing influence with new legislation. Joining us now with more on these events is our correspondent Hardiman Pesto. Well, Martin, this may surprise you, but even back then, there were indications of the Chinese government's intentions towards Hong Kong. The British government, however, refused to acknowledge the warning signs and proceeded to sign the Sino-British Joint Declaration. It's a sad example of how the desire for short-term economic gains can lead to long-term disastrous consequences for the people affected. This is interesting, Pesto, and do go on. What signs were the British missing? Well, there were reports of widespread human rights abuses in mainland China, and the Chinese government's brutal crackdown on the pro-democracy movement in Beijing in June of 1989, just a few months before the signing of the declaration. It was a clear indication of the Chinese government's willingness to use violence to suppress dissent. And what did the British do about it, Pesto? They chose to look the other way in pursuit of continued access to China's markets. It was a foolish decision that has had far-reaching consequences. And here we are today, Pesto, with Hong Kong's freedoms and autonomy all but erased by the Chinese government. It's a tragedy. Yes, it is. And it's a reminder that short-term economic gain should never come at the expense of fundamental human rights and freedoms. I couldn't agree more, Pesto. This has been an eye-opening conversation. Thank you for shedding light on this important topic. My pleasure, Martin. Always happy to inform the audience. Now go away. Omitio.
1828. And in, in 1828, the year that gave rise to the nullification crisis, a political standoff between South Carolina and the federal government erupted over alleged unconstitutional federal tariffs within the state. This conflict ultimately led to a significant debate on states' rights, driving John C. Calhoun's advocacy for nullification and high-tariff restrictions. The crisis ended with the replacement of the contested tariff in 1833. Joining us from Washington now is CBN's Melody Wintergreen, who has more on this fascinating historical episode. The evening air is alive with the scent of history as the people of South Carolina gather around the old state house to reenact the fateful events of 1828. The streets are lined with costumed actors playing the roles of John C. Calhoun, Andrew Jackson, and Henry Clay, their voices echoing through the cobblestone streets in a passionate yet polite debate. The crowd is thick with excitement, for this is a yearly tradition that brings a sense of pride and unity to the state. The past is brought to life before their very eyes, and yet there is an underlying tension that lingers in the air. As the performance reaches its climax, John C. Calhoun takes to the stage once again, his words ringing out like a clarion call for states' rights and the nullification of federal tariffs. The crowd roars their approval, their fists held high in defiance. But then, a lone figure steps forward from the shadows. A man dressed in a dark suit and a fedora, his demeanor stern and unyielding. It is Henry Clay, come to remind the people of South Carolina that the courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, have already rejected the theory of nullification. The crowd falls silent their hearts heavy with the weight of history. And so, the performance ends on a note of solemn reflection. The people of South Carolina may relive the events of 1828 each year, but they are ever mindful of the lessons of the past. They know that while states' rights are important, they must also bow to the rule of law. For in the end, it is the preservation of the Union that is paramount. Melody Wintergreen reporting for Newsbang in the streets of South Carolina on the eve of this historic anniversary. Newsbang, a wake-up call for the brain dead. Now it's time for a special segment on historical sports events. Ryder Boff will take us through some of the most significant moments in sports history. Get ready to travel through time and witness these unforgettable moments. Good morning. It's Tuesday the 19th of December. Today's news is not just an ordinary news. No, today we're going to travel through time and visit some of the most historical events in sports. But first, a funny thing that happened. While I was on my way here, I saw an old man running with a walking stick. I thought it was funny, so I started laughing at him. Then I realised it was Sir Edmund Hillary. He was running late for his attempt at climbing Mount Everest. Let's start with our first event. It's from the year 2022. Argentina won the 2022 World Cup, which took place in Qatar. This was a historical moment for Argentina as this was their first World Cup win in 36 years. They defeated France by four goals to two in the final. Messi, the Argentinian tango master, was crowned the tournament's best player. Now, let's travel back to 1883. 
The Jules Rimet Trophy, which is the most prestigious trophy in sports, was stolen from the offices of the Brazilian Football Confederation. This was a real shock to the world as not even God had it on his list of things to do. The trophy was kept safe until it had to be handed over to the winner of the next World Cup. Thankfully, it was found with a street sweeper five days later, right after the Brazilian team won the trophy. Now, let's fast forward to 1618. A man named Arthur Guinness set up a brewery in Likeslip, Ireland. Little did he know that his beer would become one of the most famous brands of beer in the world. People drink it on every continent and it has become part of our daily habits. Now, it's not just a sports event that happened, but it had a very important connection to sports. I remember once uh, there was a team of six beer bongs that couldn't lose a game. They were the greatest beer bong team in the world and yet they had a secret weapon. They drank Arthur Guinness beer before each game. No one could catch them and I bet they're still drinking it today. And now it's time for our fun fact. Did you know that the FIFA World Cup trophy is made up of six kilos of gold and has a value of zero euro 20 cents? That's right. For 36 years, the trophy has been awarded to the winner of the World Cup, but you could buy it in a flea market for a small change of euros. Thank you for joining me on this historical journey. Until next time, have a wonderful sports day. Next up, we have a special report from Polly Beep about an event that took place in 1997. It's about a plane called Silk Air Flight 185 that had an unexpected adventure. Well, you're in for a treat, drivers. The year is 1997. On this very day, we have some exciting news for you all. The Silk Air Flight 185 has embarked on an unexpected adventure. It's flying straight into the Musi River in Indonesia. This thrilling event is sure to make your Tuesday commute a little more exhilarating. The Musi River, a magnificent stretch of water flowing through southern Sumatra, is no stranger to such dramatic encounters. Measuring a staggering 750 kilometers, it's the perfect backdrop for this tale of aviation. After a scenic journey through the town of Palembang, the Musi River joins forces with other watery warriors to form a mighty delta near the town of Sungsang, an ideal location for ships to gather, including those of the petroleum, rubber and palm oil variety. As you embark on your daily drive, remember to keep your eyes peeled for the daring Flight 185, and who knows, you might even catch a glimpse of it, gliding gracefully through the waters of the Musi River. A sight to behold indeed. Safe travels, everyone. Next up, Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang Science Watch, discussing the European Space Agency's Gaia mission. This satellite aims to create a comprehensive 3D star catalogue, observing a billion celestial bodies and potentially revealing more about our galaxy's formation. Tune in for this fascinating segment on space exploration. On this day in history, the European Space Agency, ESA, launched the Gaia Space Observatory, a marvel of British technology. Gaia's mission? To create the most comprehensive 3D star catalogue 
ever. Gaia, named after the Greek goddess of motherly love, will observe one billion stars, planets, comets, asteroids, and even quasars. That's more celestial bodies than you'd find at a typical Tom Jones concert. For centuries, humans have been mapping the heavens. From ancient civilizations to modern times, star catalogues have advanced from papyrus to floppy disks. But Gaia takes it one step further. Equipped with cutting-edge British technology, Gaia will measure the positions and motions of stars with unprecedented accuracy. It's like having a celestial GPS for alien tourists. Gaia's data will help us understand better how our galaxy formed and evolved. Imagine, all thanks to a little satellite named after an ancient deity. So next time you look up at the night sky, remember Gaia is up there too, charting the cosmos and making sense of the universe. And who knows, maybe one day we'll receive an interstellar postcard from an alien race that found us thanks to our very own Gaia girl. This has been Calamity Prenderville for Newsbang Science Watch, signing off. News bang, the sweet smell of truth wafting through the swamp of misinformation. Sandy O'Shaughnessy is about to present a segment on the Royal Rendezvous with Coronations, focusing on the 1154 AD event of King Henry II's coronation in Westminster Abbey. Nice and easy. Ah, a very good evening to you all. Welcome, welcome, and thrice welcome to the Royal Rendezvous with your old mate, Sandy O'Shaughnessy. The clock strikes seven, the candles are lit, and the scones are fresh out of the oven. So grab a cuppa, pull up a chair, and let's wander through the annals of time as we celebrate one of history's most regal traditions, coronations. Huh? <laughs> it's 1154 AD, and the year is buzzing with excitement. Henry the Skint has just been crowned King of England in Westminster Abbey. Now that's what I call a grand ceremony. Imagine all those plumes and pageantry, enough to make even J.R. Ewing blush. And Westminster Abbey, a venue fit for royalty if ever there was one. It's been hosting coronations since 1066 AD. That's longer than some people's marriages last these days. Huh? <laughs> But let's not get too carried away with our English royalty just yet. You see, Henry II wasn't just King of England, he also controlled Wales, Ireland, France, Scotland, and even the Duchy of Brittany. Talk about having your fingers in every pie. He was quite the powerhouse in his day, a true king among kings. Huh? <laughs> Nowadays, we might think of coronations as mere ceremonies steeped in tradition, but back then, they were events that could make or break a monarch's reign. It was like throwing a party for the entire kingdom, only with more gold and less disco music. Huh? Uh, so here's to Henry II and his glorious coronation in 1154 AD. May his legacy live on as an inspiration to future kings and queens everywhere. And who knows, maybe one day we'll be celebrating another grand coronation right here on this very airwave. Until then, keep those letters coming to my desk at Newsbank Towers. I can never get enough of your tales from yesteryear and today. Until next time, see you later, alligator, in a while, crocodile. Cheerio for now. Hello Adieu.
1997. The year is 1997, and the movie Titanic made over a billion dollars. It's an American film about the tragic sinking of a ship that occurred in 1912. Directed by James Cameron, it stars Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio as star-crossed lovers from different backgrounds. The Titanic cast also includes some other fine performers. And now, for more on this blockbuster film, we'll hand it over to Smithsonian Moss. Now, at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Oh no, y'all! It's me, Smithsonian Moss, jumping aboard that fabled ship of love, the Titanic, circa 1997. Batten down the hats, folks, because we're sailing straight into the heartwarming shipwreck that is the blockbuster of blockbusters, James Cameron's Titanic. I think they should change the name to Titanic. A dramatic and disastrous love story starring the 90s it couple, Die Cappy and Wonkers. Back when our planet was still basking in the glow of floppy disks and AOL CDs, Cameron sailed onto the screens of cinephiles worldwide like a viral sensation we can't get enough of today. He dared to conquer the iceberg of romantic tropes, weaving the tragic tale of star-crossed lovers with different social classes and different hair textures. DeCapi and Wonkers, the dreamy dashing man and the bubbly redhead with an unwavering chin that's ready to redefine what being tough looks like. That's right, my little popcorn munchers, it's DiCapi versus the Titanic, a showdown for the ages. The film sailed all the way from concept to blockbuster collecting euro, one cent billion worldwide, an amount that made other films green with envy. So hold on to your inflatable life jackets and diamonds, because this shipwreck is about to take a dramatic turn and reveal the secrets locked in its watery grave. Oh, and let's not forget the brilliant supporting cast who navigated the waters of social norms with flair and sass, creating the perfect storm of character dynamics, each providing comic relief or side-eye moments that had us questioning humanity itself. It was quite the lineup, darlings. So whether you're a believer in love or just here for the train wreck that was the 90s dating scene, Titanic was a shipwreck we couldn't help but watch from the lifeboats, eyes glued to the sinking screen. So cheers to Jack, Rose, DeCapi, Wonkers, and the gang of dreamy faces that made us feel alive and yet completely destroyed that day Titanic drowned at the box office. Keep your life vests handy and your heart ready for anything, because in Smithsonian's world, anything can happen, and it probably will. News bang, bluntly stating the obvious, because honesty is the best policy. And now, tomorrow's headlines. The Times. Cardiff, capital of Wales, population 3,601,100 in 2021. The Guardian. Captain America created to fight Nazis thaws out for Avengers duty. The Sun. Jets win silent game against dolphins. NBC regrets no commentary. The Beano, Biffo the Squirrel punches Lord Snooty in the trousers. And finally, the Utoxeter Clarion, Bigfoot spotted at Area 51, knitting circle, aliens baffled. That's it from Newsbank. Join us tomorrow when we'll be asking if there's any news left. Good night and don't let the bedbugs bite, unless you're into that sort of thing.
Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>